Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9, but I'm going to start at verse 1 uh, for the sake of context. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Thanks be to God for his holy word this morning. We live in a self-centered and narcissistic age. Evidence of this is found in people's obsession with taking selfies. It is found in our conversations. The first words that often come out of our mouths usually reflect what we're uh, concerned with the most. And they are usually I or my. Also, it is found in how uh, the up-and-coming generations do not care to know much about history. They're satisfied with historical one-liners that support whatever the cool trend, agenda, or movement there is to join today. But this narcissism is not foreign to the church. This has marked Christianity for the last two centuries, where many people are only concerned with their personal salvation, disconnected from history, and disconnected from the church. But in our text this morning, Paul transitions from speaking of the Galatians' personal experience of salvation to situating salvation in history. In Paul's mind, personal salvation finds its root in the history of redemption, going back to the Old Testament. In other words, the message of the gospel or the good news is nothing new. And this would help to build his argument that he knew his Bible. It is the same gospel as the gospel found in the Old Testament. And that his gospel is the true gospel. There has always been one plan of redemption for both Jews and Gentiles, not two or three or four plans. And so the Judaizers were the ones teaching a false gospel. The true gospel was first announced by God in Genesis 3.15. After man fell into sin, after being tempted by Satan, the Lord turned to the serpent and said, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
Then this gospel message continued in the various covenants to follow. Covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David. And those who believe this gospel throughout Old Testament history are listed in Hebrews 11. In what we call the Hall of Faith. It mentions Abel, Enoch, Noah, Moses, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And all these were looking forward to the promised Messiah to come. But the one I didn't mention from Hebrews 11 is the one that Paul turns to as his example of faith. Abraham. Most of the Jews would have claimed that Abraham was their father, the the father of their faith. Uh, This would have included the Judaizing false teachers in Galatia. But Jesus corrected this idea that being a son of Abraham was to be merely a physical descendant of Abraham. And that the Jews and their leaders at the time proved not to be the sons of Abraham because they were seeking to kill Jesus. They were not the sons of Abraham because they rejected the Messiah. They rejected the great I Am. Uh, Remember, Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced when he saw his day. And Paul in our text is trying to correct the same false idea that the descendants of Abraham are merely physical descendants. So we see here who are the true sons of Abraham And that the old plan of redemption is the only plan of redemption. First, who are the sons of Abraham? But in order to know who the sons are, it would be wise to get to know the father. So to answer this question, it would be wise for us to get to know Abraham. Let us backtrack in our text a bit. Uh, Paul asked the Galatians, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you Do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, he is referring to Genesis chapter 15. But before this, in Genesis chapters 12 through 14, Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans to be set apart for God. He was a pagan called out of his paganism. And he was considered the first Hebrew. This is why the Jews consider him the father of their faith. And the Lord promised to give him a land. So Abraham separated from his nephew, uh, Lot, over land disputes. Then later, rescued Lot from the hands of the four kings. And as he was meeting with the king of Sodom, Abram was blessed by the mysterious king of Salem, uh, Melchizedek, whom we believe to be the pre-incarnate Christ. Then we reach Genesis chapter 15, where God makes a covenant with Abram, or Abraham. Abram was childless, and in this covenant, the Lord promised Abram not only land, but also a child, a son to be his heir rather than his servant Eliezer. And even more than that, the Lord brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven, And number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This is why Abram is given the name Abraham, 
Because he is the father of a multitude of nations. We see this fulfillment today in the church. And how the church is made up of many nations, tongues, and tribes. And it says that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Then after this, God called Abram to make sacrifices and God walked through the pieces of those sacrifices to symbolize that he, that is God, was to fulfill the terms of the covenant. This was the Old Testament's Golgotha or Calvary pointing forward to the cross of Christ. Now the question for us is, What did Abraham do for God to make this promise to him besides believe in the Lord? Well, nothing. What did the men listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 do besides believe in the promises of the Lord? Nothing. No works. Remember, even Moses failed to enter the earthly promised land because of disobedience. Yet God counted Abraham's faith, and I'm sure he counted Moses' faith, as righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? Righteousness is obedience to the law. You can't be righteous and at the same time be disobedient to the law. Listen to Deuteronomy 6:25 where it defines righteousness. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. So counting his faith as righteousness means that he looked at Abraham as if he fulfilled the requirements of the law perfectly. As if he obeyed the law that Adam disobeyed. Yet all along, Abraham offered no obedience as grounds for his righteousness. Uh, Genesis 15 took place before he was commanded to be circumcised. So this was before circumcision. So the Judaizers can't argue that Abraham had to be circumcised in order to be counted as righteous. But also listen to Paul in Romans 4, relating it to the Christian today. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you doubt that, let us consider Abraham's track record here. If you follow his life, he didn't always make the most righteous decisions. Abraham was sinful. In Genesis 15, verses 2 through 3, the Lord answers Abraham with this covenant promise of a child, and he answers him responding to Abraham's doubt. He doubted God's goodness to him. In Genesis 16, right after God makes the covenant promise to Abraham that he would have a child, he and Sarah devised a plan in opposition to God's plan and God's word. 
to impregnate her servant, Hagar, so that Abraham would ensure that he would actually have an heir. They took things into their own hands. They doubted God's word, much like Adam and Eve did. Both Sarah and Abraham were guilty of plotting and committing adultery, and it was rooted in their doubt. They doubted God's goodness and his covenant promise. They tried to do it their own way rather than trust in his word. Now, did Abraham lose his salvation? Was he no longer counted as righteous? And don't forget Genesis 20 when Abraham lied for the second time about his relationship to Sarah to protect himself. He said, oh no, that's not my wife. That's my sister. You can take her for yourself and do whatever you want with her. What a lousy husband. Now, this doesn't mean he never repented of his sin or that we're to take sin lightly in our lives. But it is to remember that the holiest of men are still men at best. Abraham was a saint and a sinner at the same time like you and I. So you're not alone. You're in good company. And this whole time, he was counted as righteous through the covenant that God made with him, not through his own righteousness. That's the point. He had no righteousness of himself to offer. Righteousness was imputed to him. It was counted to him. That is what to impute righteousness means. It is to ascribe or count righteousness to someone who is not that righteous at all. And it is by virtue of the righteousness of someone else. It was the righteousness of God that was imputed or counted to Abraham when he believed God's promises. So when God looked at Abraham, he looked at him as if he was perfectly righteous. So for the Judaizers to come along and make conditions of obedience and righteousness as the way someone is justified or the way someone is saved is out of step with the gospel. As Christ proclaimed to the Pharisees, so does Paul proclaim to the Judaizers that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is where Paul identifies the sons of Abraham. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Well, what is faith? Uh, The words faith and believe in the Greek New Testament share the same root word. Faith is receiving and resting in God's promises, specifically in Christ and his righteousness. If someone is relying on their own goodness, their own good works, or obedience to the law to save them, Uh, For the Galatians, it was specifically circumcision. Uh, But it can mean any good works for us added to Christ's finished work. Then these are not sons of Abraham. More pointedly, they are not children of God. So it would be pointless for the Gentiles to become Jews in order to be saved. Because it is those who are spiritual descendants that are true descendants of Abraham, not physical descendants. It is those of faith, not works of the law, that are sons of Abraham. So what is Paul saying here? Secondly, Paul is saying that the gospel is old news. It is not new. 
He says in the scripture, in the Old Testament scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Here he is interpreting when Abraham was first called out of his country and called out of paganism in Genesis 12, verse 3. And there are a few things to consider here. First, the gospel was preached beforehand in the Old Testament to Abraham. It was already in operation in the days of Abraham. We can go back to Genesis 3.15 and trace it all the way through to the New Testament. So this means the plan of salvation, the plan of redemption, the gospel good news has always been the same in the old and in the new. In the old, it was promised. In the new, it was fulfilled. Secondly, it says that the gospel message that was preached to Abraham was that in him all nations will be blessed. Now, what does that mean? How? Uh, Let us recognize that nations here is not speaking of modern-day geopolitical nation-states. This is talking about individuals of many different people groups or ethnicities. In the ESV, Genesis 12.3 is translated to say that in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How? Through his promised seed or offspring. The seed that was later promised in Genesis 15. Automatically, you're asking, through Isaac? Well, yes, but not ultimately. Isaac would be this one offspring's greater ancestor, but truly the seed that the Lord was promising in Genesis 15 was Christ. Paul says this later in verse 16 of this chapter, that the offspring is not plural, but one offspring or seed, which is Christ. So to be blessed in Abraham is to share the same faith that Abraham had in the promised seed. It wasn't about keeping the law, but it was about looking forward to what the Lord promised in Christ. This is why Jesus said that Abraham saw his day and was glad. He believed in the same promised Messiah, the offspring of the woman who will unite both Jew and Gentile in himself. And so thirdly, notice the universal scope of the gospel. Because after reading this, we must conclude that the Gentiles would be justified by the same faith in the same gospel that was preached to Abraham. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 30, that God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Jew and Gentile are saved by the same gospel, the gospel of the good news of Abraham's seed or offspring, which is ultimately Christ. It is only through Jesus Christ, believing in his person and work, can someone be redeemed or saved, or as it says in Genesis 12, 3, blessed. It is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm going to be saying this throughout the whole series. Because this is what Paul says throughout the whole letter. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What does it mean to be blessed? It means 
to receive God's unmerited or demerited favor. It means to have peace with God and to be secure in God. It means we no longer have God as a judge, but he is now our father. Listen to the ironic blessing of number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Outside of Christ, you can't have any true blessing from God. You can't have any true peace with God. He is saying only by faith in Christ can you be truly blessed and redeemed. This is what he is telling the Judaizers. Now, what did it mean to them and what does it mean for us as a church? In the church, from the moment Christ died on the cross, the distinction between Jew and Gentile has been removed. To be a son of Abraham has nothing to do with your ethnicity or your race. In fact, you can be a Jew and still not be a son of Abraham, like the Judaizers and the scribes and the Pharisees. To be a son of Abraham means that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Unfortunately, especially in the media, sometimes taught by other Christians, it is taught that Abraham is the father of the three world religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But that's false according to Paul and according to God's word. The descendants of Abraham are not those who are physical descendants, but those that are spiritual descendants believing in the same gospel promise to Abraham, believing in Jesus Christ. And their faith, your faith, is counted as righteousness. Now, do you have this faith? Do you have this faith in Christ alone? A faith that is unseen? It cannot be pointed out by externals or by your ethnicity or even by what you wear? So thirdly, to summarize, this message from Paul is saying that the old plan of redemption is the only plan of redemption. There was no plan A and then a plan B. There was no plan A, redemption for Israel, and plan B, redemption for the Gentiles and the church. No, it was always one plan to redeem God's people, the church, made up of both Jew and Gentile through Jesus Christ his Son. Unfortunately, many Christians believe that God somehow changed his mind and changed his plan somewhere along the way. But this is not true. God's plan from the beginning was to build a kingdom with man as his vice-regent, or what we would call a prince, one who would rule his kingdom. But, guess what? Adam failed. He sinned and introduced death and decay into this world. So the Lord promised that he would build his kingdom through the seed of the woman, through Abraham's offspring, who will bruise the serpent's head. And through faith in him, he will build his kingdom, made up of many nations, those who are made in God's image, and those who worship God in spirit as well as in truth. Now, this is what Jesus told the Samaritan woman. 
The Samaritan woman was a half-breed, half-Gentile, and half-Jew, which was pretty much like being a full-breeded Gentile at the time for the Jews. And she believed in Jesus, and she was saved. She was an adulterer. She had no good works that she performed in order to be saved. Rather, she looked to Christ, believed in Him, confessed Him with her mouth, and she was saved. So all believers throughout history have always been saved in the same way in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. It has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ promised in the old and Christ dwelling among us in the flesh, in the new. This is why we place so much emphasis on preaching Christ week in and week out, so that you would not look to your own goodness, you would not look to your own good works, but you would look to Christ by faith, believing in the promises of God. That is the only way to stand righteous before God. If you try to approach God with works of the law, you could never stand His scrutiny. Never. So I would say to you this morning, what the author of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So first, if you're trusting in yourself or your own efforts to save yourself, give up. Give up. It's too late for that. Give up the burden of sin and condemnation and place your faith in the one who perfectly obeyed on your behalf. Trust in Christ's obedience and righteousness and his righteousness will be counted to you. It will be imputed to you because until then, the law of God rests on you. The law of God condemns you as the father of Puritanism, uh, William Perkins said, the law is a handwriting against us. The law only kills us. It only condemns us. While the gospel of Jesus Christ, through word and spirit, frees us and gives us new life so that the law would now be a joy to us and that we would seek to fulfill that law. So secondly, we should strive by faith to live a life of faith, like Abraham. Listen to Paul in Romans 4, and listen closely. In hope, he, that is Abraham, believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now remember Abraham. It's like Paul overlooked all of his sins and his faults. Remember his sin. 
He wasn't the most perfect man in his faith. Yet he was an example of faith. We are to live believing in that God is going to accomplish what he promised us. He is going to complete what he began in us. Not allowing unbelief, even our own unbelief. Just like Abraham's unbelief. Not even our own unbelief to cause us to waver from God's promises in Jesus Christ. How many of us sense that our faith goes up and down like a roller coaster each day? One day it's strong, the next day it's weak. One day we're rejoicing, and the next day we're depressed. We all feel that. But thanks be to God that our faith is not dependent on our faith. Did you get that? Our faith is not dependent on our faith. Even our weak and little faith is dependent on God and His promises. Isn't that reassuring? That even our weak faith is dependent on God. And his promises, not us. Look at the mess that Abraham made right after God spoke to him directly and promised him an heir. Also, thirdly, we ought to rejoice and praise God that this gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone has reached people all over the globe. Every time we share a missionary story here, from another part of the world, do we ever realize that it is confirmation of God fulfilling His promises to Abraham? Have we ever thought of that? That the Old Testament is still being fulfilled today when this gospel goes forth and we're giving updates every week of missionaries and their stories of people coming to faith. The promise that many will be blessed along with Abraham, that people from all walks of life will come to the faith of Abraham and be called his sons because they believe that God exists and he rewards those who seek him, ultimately who seek him in the promised seed, Jesus Christ our Lord. As John says, to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let us praise God for that. Amen.